For the last few weeks, we've been in a series that we've been calling Close Encounters. And in this series, we've revisited some of the everyday encounters that Jesus has had with a variety of people. And even though I'm not talking about the encounter between Jesus and Peter this weekend, the reason I chose that clip is this. I want you to understand that when Jesus came to this earth, because we've seen some incredible encounters, when he came to this earth, he didn't come just to perform miracles. Although we've seen a lot of miracles in this series. When Jesus came to this earth, he didn't come just to bring hope to the hopeless. Although we've seen a lot of hopelessness in this series. I want you to know that when he came to this earth, he came to change the world. And what we've seen in this series is how he went about it. He went about it by changing one life at a time. And i got to tell you, if you've been here through this series and you still have not had an encounter with God through Jesus Christ, I can tell you he would love nothing more than for you to this weekend to be able to show up in your life and change your life so you could partner with him to change the world. Now, this weekend we're wrapping up our series by looking at an encounter between Jesus and two sisters. Their names are Mary and Martha. And in this encounter, we're going to learn a truth about God that I really believe can absolutely revolutionize our relationship with him. I know that over the years it's done it in my life. And if you're here this weekend and you're not in a relationship with God, in fact, you don't even want to be in a relationship with God, right? This may change your mind this weekend. And I say that because... I think a lot of people don't cross the line. A lot of people aren't in a relationship with God because I think there's a lot of unknowns. And you're kind of afraid of the unknowns. Like you're wondering, you know, what if I get in this relationship with God and, and what is God going to want from me? And, and what if I can't deliver? What if he wants something from me and I can't pull it off? What if, what, what if I don't do enough to keep him happy? Or what if I'm not good enough? Then what? I mean, I'm in this relationship. The last thing you want is God being upset with you every day because you can't do what he wants you to do. What then? Well, a lot of those questions are going to be answered this weekend in this encounter between Jesus and the two sisters. By the way, whenever I think of this story, I'm always reminded of what my friend Jerry Decker loves to say. If I've heard him say it once, I've heard him say it a thousand times. He says, there are two ways to live life. You can either make time good or you can make good time. In other words, you can live a frantic life, you can live a hectic life, you can live a busy life, you can make good time, always getting things done, always, 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 you're like the bumper sticker, I don't know where I'm going, but I'm making good time. You're always busy, you're always doing something, or you can make time good, you can stop and smell the roses. Now here's the problem with that quote. When's the last time you got a pat on the back at work, or in your home, or maybe even at church for taking it easy and smelling the roses? Now, I'm just going to tell you, that's not the way I was raised. I was raised that a good Christian is a busy Christian. We didn't have any time to smell stinking roses. You know what I'm saying? We didn't have time. I mean, we were committed. We were being busy. In fact, let me tell you what my life was like as a teenager. I was a bus captain. Now, if you didn't grow up in a Baptist church, again, I grew up in a free will Baptist church, which I've said is one of the great oxymorons of all time, free will and Baptist in the same. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But I was a bus captain. That meant that on Saturday, I went out and visited a section of our city in Durham, and I tried to get kids to ride the bus. On Sunday morning, I was on the bus at 7 o'clock. I rode around. We picked up kids. We brought them to church. Then I went to Sunday school. Then I went to Sunday morning service. And then I went home, but I was back by 4.30 because that was choir practice. Yes, I was a geek. I was in the choir. 4.30 choir practice. 6 o'clock, we had service again that night. After church, we had our youth activities. Okay, Wednesday night we came back for a prayer meeting. It was just another excuse for the pastor to talk for another hour. And then Thursday nights we went out on visitation to do soul winning. We were going to save your soul from hell. And then Saturday it started all over again. That's what my life was like. We were committed. We were busy. After all, God's called us to use our time wisely. 
He told us to invest in things that will last, things that will make a difference. He, he even tells us to involve ourselves in doing good stuff. I mean, shouldn't we be busy? In fact, this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way they may see your good works. I mean, you got to be putting it out there, but you can't stop there. Because the rest of the verse goes to motive. Jesus goes on to say, in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You know what that tells me? That tells me that doing good stuff to bring glory to God is one thing. But when you're driven to do good stuff for other reasons, maybe you're doing it out of guilt. Maybe you're doing it because you feel like you need to pay some penance. Maybe you're doing stuff because you need to maybe find some acceptance. That spells trouble. Because if you live your life this way, if you're not careful, you will fall into the trap of believing that the more you do, the more God is pleased with you. The more you do, the busier you are, the more valuable you are to God. And so you'll spend your life doing a lot of stuff, staying busy, making good time, thinking that you're doing exactly what it is God wants you to do. But in the process, you could totally miss out, totally miss out on the abundant life that God has designed specifically for you and for me. Now, if you have your Bible, Luke chapter 10, I want to show you something. There's an encounter between Jesus and a busy do-gooder. Her name is Martha. And, and let me give you the setting as you're turning over Luke chapter 10, because I think it's one of the most intimate scenes in the life of Jesus. This, 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 this encounter takes place in a little house, in a little village called Bethany. Bethany was located about two miles outside the busy city of Jerusalem. It's kind of like in the suburbs. And, and this house was owned by Martha. And, and she's the oldest of three siblings. You have Martha. And then you have Mary, her younger sister, and then you have Lazarus. You probably remember Lazarus. Lazarus was the dude that Jesus raised from the dead. Remember that story? If you've never read it, go read John chapter 11. You ought to read it because if you've never memorized a verse in the Bible, there's a verse there you can memorize. In fact, we should just do it this weekend. So everybody can walk out of here saying, I know at least one Bible verse by heart. Say this, John eleven thirty five. say it. Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. Let's say it one more time. John eleven thirty five. What is it? You got it. I mean, you're on your way to memorizing the whole Bible, but it's right there in John chapter eleven verse thirty five. So you got you got Martha, you got Mary, you got Lazarus, and for some reason Jesus chose their home as a refuge. I don't know why. Maybe it was a place where he knew there wouldn't be any hidden agenda. You know, they were always asking him questions, trying to trick him, the Pharisees, the scribes. Maybe he knew none of that nonsense was going to go on there. Maybe it was a place he just knew he could get a good night's rest, maybe some sleep, maybe a decent meal. But whatever the reason, unexpectedly in our story, Jesus shows up unannounced with the disciples. Now, we don't know if it's part of the disciples or all the disciples, but let's just assume there's 8, 10, 12, maybe 13 if they're all there, and they all show up, and they knock on the door, and Martha opens the door. It's like, surprise! And, of course, she's excited to see them. She invites them in. But it isn't just Martha that we're interested in in this story. It's this whole contrast of personalities. I mean, all we have to do is look around a church like Hope and realize that we're different. I mean, but not just physically. Yeah, we look different, but we're different because God has given us each different personalities, each different kinds of, of temperaments. Some of you here are artsy. You know, you'll waste two years of your life. You're never going to get back watching something like So You Think You Can Dance. You know, you don't feel guilty about that at all, you know. Some of you are technically oriented. Some of you are laid back, you know, like a surfer dude. Some of you are driven. 
Some of you are consumed with detail. Some of you couldn't care less. But there are all kinds of varieties of people at Hope, right? In fact, in one of Gary Smalley's books, and you probably study this, he describes some of us as otters. Maybe if you're an otter, you're fun-loving, easygoing, you're laid back, you're relaxed. Maybe that describes you. Some, he says, are like lions. It's, listen, we got to do it. We got to do it right now. You just walk into any situation and you can just take charge and you know who you are and you're obnoxious, by the way, to the rest of us, okay? But some of you are like lions. Others are retrievers. You know, you just care about how people feel. You listen closely when they speak. You just naturally empathize with people. You just naturally walk in their shoes. And then there are always the busy, organized beavers, okay? You care mainly about details. For example, I know who you are because you show up every weekend and you get the bulletin and you get your pen and you circle every mistake in the bulletin, right? And if there's any mistake in any of my slides, you can't wait for me to be out under the portico so you can come let me know right after the service. You know exactly who you are, right? So some of you are like that. Martha, think about Martha. She's somewhere between a lion and a beaver. She will walk into a situation and take charge. She is into the details. By the way, my wife, Laura, fits this description. Uh, we leave tomorrow for Uganda, or Monday for Uganda, and, uh, and uh, we, we get in at like 6 o'clock Tuesday morning, and then we're in London from 6 o'clock Tuesday morning to like 9 o'clock Tuesday night, then we fly out again, we have another overnight flight till we get to Uganda. Well, Tuesday happens to be my birthday, so Laura's all excited since we're going to be there from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. She said, we will go into London and we'll celebrate your birthday. I said, well, that's, that's fine, that sounds cool. What do you want to do? I don't care. Can we, can we just hang out? That is beyond her comprehension. So she gives me, you know, we can take a Mini Cooper tour. And we can get in a Mini Cooper. And they're going to drive us all over town. All these back down the Or we can do a James Bond tour. Or we can go see these castles. Can't we just relax? No! I mean, it's beyond her comprehension. She can't even comprehend that. Every detail, I mean, she's just wearing me out. My birthday's going to be exhausting. That's Martha. That's Martha. Mary is somewhere between a retriever and an otter. She's laid back, she's sensitive, she's loving, she's caring, she probably cries easily. I think she's like me. Nothing right or wrong with either, although I will say this, if you're like me, you are more like Jesus. I'll do a series on that sometimes. <laughs> Don't be bitter. Don't be bitter, you lions. All of this is played out in this scene, okay? So we got the scene. Now, in verse 39, we have Jesus in the house, Mary, okay? She's sitting at his feet. She's hanging on every word he has to say. I mean, how often do you just have Jesus drop by, right? She's not concerned about the house. Mary doesn't care that the floors haven't been swept. Mary doesn't care that the trash hasn't been taken out. I think Mary's the type, you know, she did the laundry. She takes the clothes out of the dryer, throws them in the corner. She doesn't fold them. If she needs something, she'll pick it up, throw it back in the dryer for five minutes, fluff it up. How many of you live with somebody like that? You know what I'm talking about, right? Well, here's the problem. People like Mary drive people like Martha crazy, right? That's the tension. That's the conflict in this story. Look at verse 40. It says this. Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Now, get this scene. Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet, taking it all in. Martha, she's all these distractions. She's got a lot on her mind. She, she's got her list. She's multitasking. She's getting things done. But here's the problem. She's also missing the opportunity to hang out with Jesus. So while Mary's hanging out with Jesus, 
you know, Martha, she's busy doing all the things. She's trying to pull together, getting everything done. I mean, she's in the kitchen trying to come up with enough food to hang, to, to, to feed this busy mob. She's thinking, do I do Mexican? Do I do Italian? What am I going to do for dessert? Do I do red wine, white wine? I'll just put water on the table. Jesus can make his own. You know, those, those kind of things. <laughs> but, and finally, you know, she comes to the place where she's had it. This is how I envision it. She's just beating that brownie mix up, right? And she's thinking, like, Martha, I'm sick of Martha. I'm here working my butt off, and she's in there sitting on her butt, and it wasn't for me. We wouldn't have a roof over our head. I just, and then finally, we don't know what happens. She blows. She just snaps. She stomps into the family room, and it says in verse 40, this is what she said. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me, and I can't prove it. But I think he's looking, she's talking to Jesus, but she's looking right at Martha. Giving her the old stanky eye, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Hands are on her hip, apron is dirty, her face is red, spit going all over the place. It's that kind of scene. And whenever you read these, this, this scene, these words, you can't help but notice where Martha's focus is. Now, this is the problem. Her focus really isn't on Jesus. Her focus really isn't on Mary. It's not even on the mill. It's on Martha. She's so busy. She's so concerned. She's trying to make it just right. It's all about her. And in this moment of frustration, she snaps, Jesus, tell her to help me. Don't you even care about me, you know? And she blows. Now, we've, we've done this a hundred times, haven't we? I mean, I was driving home last Sunday afternoon. I preached four services. I was tired. And as I'm driving home, my cell phone rings. And Laura, she's always, she's, you know, chirp, chippy and bubbly. And I can hear her smiling through the phone. And, and she's like, hey, honey, don't forget at 2 o'clock we have to be at our nephew's house to help him unload his moving truck. Remember, they moved here from Maryland today. And I'm like, okay. And don't forget, we need to leave by 4.15 to get to Durham Bulls game, okay? Because I have the sign, and I'm giving out the tickets, and I'm like, okay. And then she says, well, where do you want to eat lunch? And I'm like, I can't take it. I can't make any decisions right now. Don't ask me anything. And she said, you sound like you're about to snap. I said, yes, I am. We've all been there, right? I love the way Jesus responds. Laura could learn from him. Just listen to what he says, verse 41. Martha, Martha, Martha. Oh, Martha. I wonder if he didn't just get up and walk over and just kind of put his arm around her and give her a hug and say, Martha, Martha, Martha. You just, Martha, just relax. Just take a deep breath. Just, just chill a little bit. Martha, the problem isn't with your sister. You know she loves you. Martha, the problem's not with me. You know I love you. In fact, it isn't even the frustration that you're going through that caused you to blow, Martha. It's your focus, Martha. It's why you're doing what you're doing. Look at how he puts it in verse 41. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You're worried and upset about many things. The word upset means to be troubled. Martha, you're, you're just, you're so troubled. Martha, look, you're so tense. I can see it in your neck. You're so full of turmoil you, you, you've taken all this you're worried about so much stuff verse 42 few things are needed Mary has a chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her in other words Martha when you think back on this day the only thing you're going to remember is how busy you were you're going to remember how frustrated you were but understand Mary 
she's going to look back on this day and she's always going to remember how her and I got to sit down and we had this incredible conversation. But Martha, you're so busy with the dishes and the food and the centerpiece. Just, just a hot pocket and a Mountain Dew would be more than enough, right? You know, just keep it simple. Now, when you get right down to it, what, what, what did Jesus really want? He just wanted to have a relationship with Martha. At the end of the day, he just wanted to spend some time with her. And I get that. You guys have all read uh, Gary Chapman's book, Love Languages. Um, my two love languages are, are, are physical touch. I think you know what I mean by that. And uh, <laughs> affirmation. I'm very insecure. And Laura, it it, she spends a lot of time reassuring me I'm not the biggest loser in the world. And if I go to work again, it will be okay. And, you know, so I need that. Uh, Laura is, is, is quality time. She likes quality time. Here's the problem. We all have a love language that it's easy for us to give. For me, it, it, it's active service. That's what, that just comes naturally for me. So if, if I want to show Laura I love her, what I do is I, I go into overdrive. I clean the house. I vacuum the floors. I mop the floors. I do all the laundry. I fold it. I change the sheets. I just do everything so that when she walks in the house, it's like, this is how much I love you. To which she responds, Oh, you want to take a walk? I'd love just to have a conversation with you. I'm like, ah, oh, you are so draining me. Would you guys pray for her? I think I'm an incredible catch. <laughs> I don't think she gets it, right? But that's what I see here. Martha's doing her thing. She's making those brownies. She's whipping that because that's how she shows her affection. And I think Jesus just wanted Martha to see that he valued her more. And this is important. He valued her more than what she could do for him. Well, I don't know about you, but I find great encouragement from this story. Because it's a simple reminder, first of all, that God doesn't expect me to perform. And second, he doesn't expect me to be perfect. Now, as we wrap up this series, this is what I want you to understand. This is what I want you to see from this story. God is not looking for perfect pastors. He's not looking for perfect parents. He's not looking for perfect spouses, perfect friends. He's not looking for perfect followers. And that's great since we can't pull off perfect anyway, no matter how hard we try. One day, you know what I really want to see? Right across the front of our church, under our portico, right above the doors where you walk in, no perfect people allowed. That would make church so much simpler. No, I mean, if you want perfection, I don't know, go to Colonial. Or, or summit. I mean, they got real pastors over there. They're, they're going to be a lot closer than we are. Because this is what I think. If the standard is anything different than imperfection, we're all on the outside looking in. This is the problem. The problem is that most churches set these unrealistic standards of perfection. And we don't mean to communicate it, but we have a way of communicating that if you don't hit the mark all the time, you are a failure. Let me tell you something. Newsflash, we're all failures. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm a failure. Just do it. Turn to your neighbor, I'm a failure. We're all failures, but this is what you need to know. Even though we're failures, even though we're 500s, God is head over heels in love with us. But we fall into this trap of thinking that we can make God love us more if we perform more because the reality is we live in a performance-based world. Let's be real, it doesn't take us long in, our, in life to figure that out as kids. We get further with mom and dad if we obey and we comply. It doesn't take us long to figure out that the teacher's pet is usually the high achiever, right? It doesn't take us long to figure out that our boss chooses his favorites based on their accomplishments. 
So from the time we're born, you know, we, we have this perform to belong mentality and it is reinforced in our lives over and over and over again. And before you know it, we fall in the trap of believing, well, God must also think this way. And we assume that he loves us based on how we act and how we perform. After all, that's, that's how everybody else loves us. Let me just tell you something. Even though our performance may impress other people, it doesn't impress God. In fact, ever since the fall in Genesis chapter 3, every person that's ever been born other than Jesus has been born a loser. We talked about it a few weeks ago. We're all 500s. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 3 verse 10, no one is good, not even one. You go a few verses later, he follows it up in verse 23. He says, every one of us have sinned. Every one of us has fallen short of that standard of perfection that God established. My point is this. Each of us is deeply flawed. Each of us because of our sin. It's not a pretty picture. Now here's, here's the good news. The good news is that God looked past all of that. And even with our sin, even with our failures, even with our imperfections, he chose to love us. He chose to to value us. I mean, when you think about our performance, it should have made God run away from us. But God looked at us even the way we are. You know what he did? He ran to us. And when we can get that, when we can somehow get our arms around that, we begin to understand that God loves us no matter what. There is absolutely nothing you can do to impress God. And I'll tell you what else, there's absolutely nothing you can do that can make him love you more than he already loves you. Now in our story, Mary got it. Martha, not so much. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you in on a secret. I'm a lot more like Martha than Mary. If there is one area, and there's many, but if there's one area in particular that I, I really struggle in my Christian journey, my Christian walk, it's this area. And I don't know why. And I'll be honest with you. I've even talked to counselors about this. But I have the hardest time getting my arms around the fact. I have the hardest time accepting the fact that God loves me for who I am. And so instead of spending quality time with God to get refreshed, I don't know, I always feel guilty. And so what I do instead of, of, of deepening my relationship with God by just being quiet and being still and understanding that he is God instead, I kick it into ministry mode. I got to get some stuff done. And I've learned that if I'm not careful, I can become addicted to the feeling I get when I do good stuff. And because when I do good stuff, maybe you're like me, it increases my self-worth. I can also fall into the trap of thinking that it impresses how God feels about me. Here's the problem. Matthew 7. Jesus talks about people who did all kinds of good stuff, but he calls them evildoers. Look at verse 22. He said this in Matthew 7, verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, and he's talking about the day of judgment. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. I don't have a clue who you are. We didn't have a relationship. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, why were they evildoers? They were evildoers because they were doing good things. But they were doing them with the wrong motive. And I got to tell you, that, that's, a, that's a problem. So as we wrap up this series, here's the question I want you to think through. Why do you do what you do? 
I mean, have you ever been honest enough to ask yourself that question? Why do I do what I do? If you serve, why do you serve? If you give, why do you give? If you attend every time the doors are open, why do you attend every time the doors are Are you performing for a prize? Are you somehow working really hard to make up for the past? Maybe think somehow you're paying off your penance? Or are you trying to prove your worth to God? Or maybe you're trying to prove your worth to others? You see, motive is huge to God. Motive's everything. We go all the way back to the story of the widow's might. What did he see? He didn't just see her actions. He saw her heart. He saw her attitude. Now, I'm just going to tell you, when you get right down to it, the only legitimate motive for doing good stuff, good works in our life, is the power of the grace of God in our hearts and lives. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. This is the guy who wrote almost half of the New Testament. 27 books in the New Testament, Paul wrote 13 of them. Some people th think he wrote Hebrews. That would put him over 50%. I don't think so. But right at 50% of the New Testament, the great apostle Paul, this is what he said. By the grace of God, what is grace? It's getting what I don't deserve. See, what we deserve is death. What we deserve is hell. But grace is getting what we don't deserve. So he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. You see, we hear that from Popeye. I am what I am. It's not from Popeye. It came from the apostle Paul. He followed it up a little bit later in maybe a letter you've never read. It's called Titus. He said this in Titus 2.14, that as we grow in Christ, in other words, as we mature on our journey, he says this, we become eager to do what is good. As we're growing in Christ, we become eager to do what is good. Why, Paul? Why is that? Because of the grace of God. See, this is what I want you to understand. When God's grace enters our life, the soul has a natural reaction. The soul should have a natural response. My automatic natural response to God's grace in my life is to do stuff for him, is to do good stuff. In fact, without even thinking about it, without having to plan it, with orchestrate it, I start to love other people. I start to serve other people. I start to give to God's kingdom. I naturally begin to reach out. I, I start to act for the good of God's kingdom. It should be a natural reflex, a natural response to God's grace in my life. It's nothing that we do, as Paul said, I am what I am. And by the grace of God, I'm nothing. I don't do good stuff. I don't help the poor or feed the hungry or dig wells in Central African Republic or reach out to orphans in Uganda in order to find acceptance from God. I do those things because I have a relationship with God. So as we wrap up the series, maybe this is the question you need to ask yourself. Ask yourself this. Do I really have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Christ have you ever had a life-changing encounter the one thing we've seen in this series every person who walked away walked away changed forever has your life really been changed it's not about what you do it's all about who you know I'm going to ask you to bow with me and you know in this series we've learned a lot about God Jesus said, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We act the same, we think the same. So by just looking and observing these encounters that Jesus had with a variety of people, we, we've learned some things about God, and I just jotted down some things. We've learned that he's all-knowing. Remember, he read, he read Simon's thoughts, and he answered them. 
We, we've, we learned that he's all-powerful. Nothing is impossible for God. We've learned that he's kind and gracious and loving and compassionate. And we've also learned that he wants to be in a relationship with you. Let me ask you a question. Doesn't that sound like somebody you want to be in a relationship with? If you're worrying about behavior and things you're going to have to give up and things you're going to have to start doing, let me just tell you something. When you get the real deal and you really encounter God and you, you accept that free gift of salvation that he gives you because of what his son Jesus Christ did on the cross, you don't need to worry about those things. Those things will begin to take care of themselves as God begins to work in your life. Do you have the real deal? Have you ever had an encounter with the real God? If you haven't, I'm just going to lead you through a prayer. If you've been going to church and jumping through religious hoops and you realize it's not about religion, it's about a relationship, and, and that's what you want, I'm going to lead you a prayer, and it's nothing special about this prayer, but if you say it from your heart, I promise you God hears you. You can just pray quietly to God, just to yourself. Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus was sent by you to be the Savior of the world. And I believe that he was sent by you to be my Savior. And right now I'm choosing not to trust in my goodness, not to trust in all my efforts. I'm placing all my trust and faith in what Jesus did on my behalf. I know I've done some bad things that only you and I know about. But if Jesus is who you said he was, I believe that you will forgive my sin because he took care of it for me on the cross. Please receive me into your family right now. Thank you for forgiving me and accepting me. In Jesus' name. If you pray that prayer and you pray it from your heart and you're saying, I'm not going to try. There's nothing good I have to offer. It's all about grace. It's all about what God is willing to do for me. God will hear you. He will receive you as his child through what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. Your slate is white clean. It says that he moves your sins as far as the east is from the west, which is infinity. <laughs> and he doesn't remember them anymore. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the offer he makes to you. Father, I pray right now as you're moving through the hearts of people, as people are asking themselves the hard question, why do I do what I do? Am I doing it to earn God's favor or am I doing it because God's favor and grace has been extended to me? Father, I pray that as people are making the decisions that they will walk out of, way, out of here new creatures, new creations, old things have passed away, all things are new. And Father, as we wrap up this series and we've learned more about you by just studying these encounters that Jesus had with everyday people, I pray that our vision of you has changed. Our perception of you has changed from being a mean and angry, cantankerous God to one who is head over heels in love with us and desires nothing more than to be in a relationship with us. We thank you for your offer. In your holy name we pray.